Well, hey there, and welcome to Online Worship. My name is Megan Honig. I'm the associate pastor here on staff at Crossroads, and it's so good to be worshiping online with you today, wherever you are. Today, we are continuing our sermon series over the book of James, and today we're going to be looking at James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. So I will read that here in just a few minutes. If you'd like to open that up online or in your Bible, I'll be reading from um, the NIV version today. So uh, before we get started, would you pray with me? Dear God, I thank you for um, the ability to come together to worship virtually, to worship you, God. God, I pray that you would open hearts and open ears so that we could hear whatever you want us to hear today, God. And let me preach whatever you want me to preach. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So I was online the other day, and I scrolled through my newsfeed and found an article about multitasking and how multitasking is actually really bad for us, but we all think that we are incredible multitaskers who can get so much done when we multitask. And so I'll be honest, I have never been a believer in multitasking. I've never been able to do one thing really well while doing another thing on the side. Like, it just doesn't make sense to me how our brains can do one thing and another thing at the same time. Like, I can hardly focus on one thing. How am I supposed to focus on two, right? So I was reading this article, and it was giving a few reasons why multitasking isn't actually as good as we think it is. And there's been research to back this up. And so I want to share with you a few things from that article talking about how multitasking actually isn't all that it's cracked up to be. Um, So one of the things from that article was multitasking is damaging our brains. It said that a study at the University of Sussex found that people who regularly multitask have a lower brain density in the region of their brain responsible for empathy, cognitive control, and emotional control. So by multitasking, we're lowering our ability for empathy and cognitive control and stuff, right? So when we multitask, it's actually kind of making us dumber a little bit. So that's one reason why multitasking isn't good. Another one is multitasking makes you less productive. It said that switching between tasks takes up a lot of brain power and makes you up to 40% less productive because of the ground you have to make up when you switch. Like you're working on one thing and then you turn to do another thing. Each time you have to reset your focus on what you're doing and it actually makes you less productive instead of just doing one thing for a whole, for a whole time and then switching to the other thing when you're finished. It actually makes you up to 40% less productive. So I thought that was interesting. Um, the last one is multitasking lowers the quality of your work. A study at the National Bureau of economic research revealed that multitasking reduces worker performance, making projects last longer, and then often creates a panic-inducing backlog because your to-do list isn't getting done. So when you're switching between projects, it makes you, um, the quality of your work go down because if you focus on one and do one thing really well, how can you expect it to be the same quality of work when you're switching between two different things? The quality of work just isn't there. So multitasking lowers the quality of your work. Yet we think that we're all incredible multitaskers. I've heard people say that before. And every time they say that, I think that just isn't true. Like multitasking isn't possible. You cannot focus on two things at once. You can only focus on one. And multitasking really isn't that effective. And so, our scripture today 
um, kind of has to do with multitasking, and we see that trying to focus our attention on two different things at once really doesn't work. So James talks about that here in James chapter 4. So this is James 4, 1 through 12, if you'd like to read along with me. It says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or a sister judges them and speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and one judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? So when we read this passage, we see that James is obviously speaking to a group of Christians who have been in some conflict. He opens up by saying, what has been causing the fighting among you? Like, what's going on? What have you been fighting about? But it's actually more of a rhetorical question because he then continues by saying, don't they come from the desires that battle within you? Which is interesting and makes me ask a few questions. The first is, what desires is James talking about here? How does James know that those desires are battling within the people? And how does he know that the desires are a source of the conflict? Well, to answer a few of those questions, when we read the rest of the passage, we see that those desires um, that are at battle are the desires of the world and the desires of God. So the Christians that James is writing to, James knows that the fighting among them is caused by those two different things that are within them. So how does he know that those, um, these battling desires are within the people? Well, if they aren't battling, with the, if they weren't battling with the desire for the world and they only desired God like they were supposed to do, they wouldn't be fighting with one another at all. When you desire to fully serve and surrender your life to God and to honor him, there's really nothing to fight about, right? If we follow God all the time, there wouldn't be any tension in the world because everyone would be doing what they're supposed to be doing. Sure, they might disagree with people who aren't Christians and who aren't following God, but this letter was written exclusively to the Christians who were fighting. And Christians who fully and faithfully follow God shouldn't have anything to fight about. So just the evidence of fighting itself is enough evidence for James to conclude that they have these battling desires within them. So then James goes on to give examples of how people are trying to find satisfaction 
for the desires that are at work within them. Verses 2 and 3 say, You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So it's saying that the people are basically trying all the wrong ways to get what they want. They have all these unsatisfied desires within them that they're looking for fulfillment in the wrong places, which is causing the tension and the fighting between them. Unfortunately, they're expecting for the things of the world to fill them up when only God can do that, which is causing problems. They're looking for fulfillment in the wrong things. And I can tell you without hesitation that God fills every desire that we have within us. When God made mankind in the Garden of Eden, he designed us so that all of our needs and desires would be fulfilled by him. Because he wanted to be the one that would fulfill our every need and every desire. He wanted us to completely depend on him. And that hasn't changed even to this day. We are still designed to be taken care of by God and have all our needs satisfied by him and by him alone. The only thing that has changed between the Garden of Eden and now is that because of the fall, sin entered the world, and now we are tempted to rely on the world instead of relying on God, how we were designed to be. And when we fall to those temptations, that means that we are looking to the world to fulfill in us the things that only God can fulfill, which is what James is warning against here. He's warning those people, don't fall to the ways of the world because God is the one that can only satisfy you. He's the only one. So James is writing to those Christians who have come to Christ but who have kind of backslid and started giving into the ways of the world instead of trusting in God to fulfill their needs. And I bet that we can relate to those people. We have um, all of those temptations every day. In one way or another, we try to fulfill them in the world. We have temptations, or we have desires for love and for peace and for rest. And oftentimes, we look for those things in the world. Like, how can I get peace? What can I do to get it? when really all we have to do is ask God for peace and he will give it to us. So we are tempted to kind of fix our own problems and to look for the, to the world for those fulfillments instead of going to God. And that's what James is warning against. So what does James say about all this fighting and the battle of desires that is going on in people's hearts? Verses 4 through 5 say, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell within us? So James says a lot in those few verses, but the part that always stands out to me and that really stood out to me when I was studying this was the first few words there when he says, you adulterous people. Adulterous. That is a very strong word, right? You don't get called an adulterer very often. So why do you think he calls them adulterous? 
We all know that adultery is talked about a lot in scripture, and it's usually describing when a man or woman has been unfaithful in their marriage. It's when one person turns away from their marriage covenant to find fulfillment outside of their marriage covenant. That is adultery. So why do you suppose James calls this mass group of Christians adulterers? Does he think they've all cheated on their spouses? Because that can't possibly be, right? Not every single one of them. And besides that, I would assume that some of them aren't married, so they can't be adulterers anyway. But there is another type of adultery that I think James is getting at here, and that is spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery, like marital adultery, um, happens when a covenant is broken. Marital adultery happens when one of the people in a marriage breaks their covenant, and likewise, spiritual adultery happens when the covenant between a Christian and God is broken. And so that covenant is broken when we sin by looking outside of our covenant with God for fulfillment. So when we look to the world to fill our needs instead of letting God fill them, we commit spiritual adultery. So James is saying that these people have turned and broken their covenant with God and committed spiritual adultery against him. So then James goes on to really describe their adultery. And he says, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. James is saying that you can't be a friend of um, the world and God. You can't follow the ways of the world and God's ways. You can't rely on the world and rely on God. It doesn't work. It's like a law of the universe. You can only depend on one or the other. And scripture tells us this time and time again. In Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. Our hearts weren't designed to have two masters. You can only handle one. You cannot multitask and focus on two people, focus on two things. You can only handle one. That's how we were designed to only be able to focus on one, which was meant to be God. We can't multitask in who we serve. And daily we have to make that decision. Who are we going to serve? Who are we going to follow? And James says that we become God's enemies when we turn from the world. Because when we turn to the world and give to it, when we are advancing the world, not the kingdom of God, when we turn to the world to fulfill our needs, we are giving into the world, giving into the enemy, and that's exactly what the enemy wants and not what God wants. When we focus on the world instead of God, we are working against God's saving work in the world against his redemption, which is literally what the enemy wants and what the enemy does. So by not following God and giving into the ways of the world, we are giving power to the enemy whose goal is to take people away from God. So if we are contributing to the ways of the world, we are contributing to the enemy's goal, which also makes us God's enemy. And when I hear that, when I think that I might be God's enemy, it makes me 
stop and think, like, could I really be God's enemy? Like, I love God. I try to follow him as much as I can. How might it be that even I could be his enemy? And then uh, times pop into my head that I might not have been the best Christ follower, right? I know that there are times when I don't treat people the best or I lie or I try to control my own life instead of following God's will for it. These are times when I have given into the world instead of following God and what he wants for me. And all these things, these seemingly harmless things, take us away from God and they give power to the enemy, even the small things. And these are things that we all do all the time. And I think we all need to come to terms with the fact that we all are fallen in one way or the other. We are all friends with the world in some way. We all either do things or believe things that don't line up with scripture. And I know that that can be really hard to admit because a lot of the time, the world makes it seem like those things do line up with what God wants. The world makes it seem like those things are wonderful and good and um, they're totally great. You don't need to worry about God. But we all know that if something doesn't line up with scripture, it's not what God wants. And in reality, these things are destroying God's kingdom. And sometimes we don't even know what we're doing, right? Like, we think we're doing wonderful things for God, but honestly, it's not what he wants. And so we often have to search our hearts and really come to God and ask him to reveal to us how we are not following him. So this just goes to show that we can't really do two things at once. We can't honor God and give to the enemy in the world at the same time. God wants all of us, not just part of us. And this fits in well with verse 6, or verse 5. It says, Do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us? God loves us so much, and he is jealous for us. He wants us all to himself, and he doesn't want us to share, he doesn't want to share us with anyone, especially the enemy, right? He doesn't want to share us with the world. He wants us all the time. And so it makes sense that he's jealous when he sees us, the people that he is supposed to be in covenant with, turning to the world to fill us, right? Like that cannot feel good. God's supposed to be in covenant with us, but we are turning away to the person that he doesn't want us to turn to, to get our fulfillment. How do you think that makes God feel? Probably not very good. And when he's here, he is ready to provide for us. He loves us and he gives us all we could ever need. But when we turn to the world, we turn to things that aren't of him. Those things uh, we falsely try to fill ourselves with. But God is right there ready to fill us to fill our every need and every want and every desire. We look for that in the places where he doesn't exist in the world. And I'm guessing when we do that, it doesn't feel very good to God. So what does God say about that? What does God do when he sees this kind of dysfunction and betrayal and adultery from the people that he loves, from us? We're supposed to be in covenant with him, but we've turned from him. 
What does he do then? What would any of us do in the face of betrayal if our spouse cheated on us? Probably get angry um, or be bitter and maybe even get revenge, right? What do you do when someone betrays you? Who knows? It could be any sort of thing, right? Our emotions just bubble up and get the best of us. But we know that God's response is usually something that is not our first response. And it says in verse 6, this is what James says, But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives favor to the humble. But he gives us more grace. I love the way that James says that here. Just, I imagine him like shrugging, just kind of saying it nonchalantly. But he gives us more grace, right? Like, we don't deserve it, but he always gives it to us anyway. I love that. Without fail, every time, God gives us more grace. God sees us in our messy, broken, and betraying state, and he still gives gives us grace when we're humble and we come to him. The definition of grace that I like to use is grace is when we get something that we don't deserve. And we for sure don't deserve the kindness and the forgiveness that God offers to us every single day. Even when we've turned to the world and worked against him, when we've been counter-redemptive in the world and become an enemy of God, we can still humbly come to God and be forgiven and accept the grace that he extends to us. God will never deny an honest, humble person when he, when he or she comes to them um, for forgiveness, right? God will never deny us when we humbly come to him. So no matter how you think you might have um, gone wrong and become friends with the world, God will always seek you out. He will always forgive you, and he will always want you back. So what does James want us to do about it? Well, so far in this passage, James has called Christians out for being double-minded and living against God. He has also told them of the grace that God offers. So this really all ends with the question, what does James want us to do about it? What's his recommendation? How do we accept the grace that God offers us and turn from our spiritually adulterous ways and reestablish the covenant that we have with God? That is the question. Now, this is usually the point um, in the sermon where Pastor Jason and I will look at what the sermon, um, look at what the text says, and come up with some practical applications that you can have in your life. Um, But when I was reading this piece of scripture, there's applications in it that James gives us to do, so I didn't make any up. These are literally from the text in verses 7 through 10. So I just want to go through each one of those um, with us today because these are the practical applications that James is giving to us um, in this scripture. So um, let's go through those. Um, The first one is he wants us to submit to him, submit to God, not to James. (laughs) James wants us to submit to God. He wants us to not turn to the world. He wants us to submit to God and God's will for us. When we become Christians, we submit to God. 
We say, God, whatever your will is, that is what I want. I want to follow you no matter what you say. And we can trust that he will be faithful to us and provide for us. And so we can be reassured that when we submit to him, he'll take care of us. And submitting to God um, sounds a little scary, right? Like we don't know what he's going to do. We don't know where he's going to lead us. But God always has our best interest in heart. He always has a plan for us. So you can trust him and submit to God. Because when you submit to him, you focus on him, you forget about the world, and you live um, completely single-minded on God. So submit to God. The second one is resist the devil. And so we resist the devil by resisting what the world wants us to do that goes against God. Every day we are faced with the enemy, whether it's like literal or not, right? There are so many things that we could do that would go against God. We could lie, we could cheat, we could treat people poorly, we could steal. There's so many things every day that we are faced with. And so we have to be prepared to resist the enemy, resist the devil when we see him in the world. When we are focused on Christ, we have to resist everything else. We have to resist the enemy and all the noise that he makes if we want to focus on God and live a life according to his purposes for us. So resist the devil, resist the things in the world, resist the temptations, and focus on God. The third is to come near to God. And this happens in our everyday life when we just spend time with God. And this comes in um, those Sunday school answers of spending time with God in prayer and reading scripture and coming to church. Those things are when we come near to God to sit with him and to listen to him and to hear what he has to say to us. When we are near to God, when we abide in him, it helps us to focus on him because we are hearing from him. We're not hearing from that outside noise. When we abide with God, we are just with him. Come near to God and he will always come near to you. Come near to God. And so the fourth is to purify our hearts. And I talked about this in my sermon a couple weeks ago about purifying our hearts. And I think that we all have to be really honest about how our hearts are impure in some ways, right? We have all sinned against God. We all have certain struggles and temptations that we struggle with every day. And one of the things that we have to do to remedy those is to ask God to purify our hearts because we cannot do it alone. God has to do the work in us. And when we submit to him and submit to the purification that he is doing in our hearts, those, that evilness in us, that impurity that is in our hearts slowly washes away and it becomes easier to resist the devil and resist the ways of the world and focus completely on him. So purify your hearts, pray to God that he would purify it and take everything that is not of him out of it so that you'd have a pure heart always focused on him. And the sixth thing Um, is fun. It says to grieve, mourn, and wail. (laughs) And I think we often forget about this grieving process that we have in life, not just grieving over um, like lost loved ones or a big change. Those are great things to grieve, and those things are necessary to grieve. But we can also grieve the way that we have sinned against God, 
right? If we just move on from it all of a sudden and forget about it and put it in the back of our minds, then there isn't um, like a thing that we can remember to not do it next time. Does that make sense? Like we can focus on that and think about how did that make me feel? How did that sin impact me? How did it impact my loved ones? And just grieving that loss so that next time uh, we are less likely to make that sin because we remember it, we've grieved it, we've mourned over the sin and how it has affected our lives. So God wants us to grieve and mourn and wail about the ways that we have been enemies of God and how we have worked against it because those things deserve grieving, right? We have worked against God um, and so we are supposed to grieve, mourn, and wail. And that is one of the ways that we can um, push the world away and focus on God. And the seventh one is to humble ourselves before God. And the last verse of the scripture says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. When we come to God and we are humble before him and we ask for forgiveness, when we ask for grace and mercy, God will always give it to us if we come to him with a humble heart, if we are willing to make the change, if we are willing to submit to him. So when we come to him with a humble heart, he will always forgive us, he will always love us, and he will never turn us away. So humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. That is a promise that he gives us. So no matter how far that you have strayed from God, he will always be waiting and willing to take you back. I hope that as you move on from this um, sermon right now, that you would re-enter your everyday life that you would think about what it really means to be focused on God and that you would um, one day just work to be friends with only God, that you would focus on that spiritual covenant that you have with him, that you would turn from the ways of the world, that you would use these applications of resisting the devil, purifying your hearts so that you could focus solely on God and focus on that covenant that you have with him because he will fulfill every desire, every want, and every need that you could ever have. God will fulfill every single one of them because he loves you and he cares about you and he wants you. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for um, the life of James and the wisdom that he shares with us. And God, I pray that as we go from this place that we would... um, just see that you would reveal to us the ways that we have been friends with the world. God, open our hearts and search them and let us know how we have been wrong so we can grieve those things, so that we can humbly turn to you and you can rid us of them, God. You can purify our hearts so that we would live completely focused on you that we wouldn't be friends with the world, that we would only be focused on you, God. Purify our hearts and be with us and send your Holy Spirit to be upon each of us. It's in your son's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Be sure to subscribe so that you can be notified of our most recent content. If you have any comments or questions for us, feel free to jump over to WashingtonCrossroads.com. Thank you again and have a great week.